Welcome to Ed Council Insights. This is our podcast to provide insights into new legal developments in the Missouri education community. If you're a Missouri school leader, school board member, or any public educational decision maker in Missouri, well, you're in the right place. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that comes up in many Missouri schools at this time of year, and that is student misconduct and student discipline. It gets to be this time of year, and I feel like saying there are two types of school leaders, ones that are dealing with student misconduct and those that are about to. It is as if we have largely moved past the angry adult time of year when we're dealing with all the personnel issues, although we still have some of those that occur, but it's more like we've moved into the crazed kids time of year. We're going to talk about the types of legal issues that come up as leaders deal with student misconduct, and uh, schools often end up at this time of year with lots of student discipline issues, ranging from the strange, sometimes bordering on the bizarre, to the routine. Maybe it's two students that are having sex in a stairwell or a vehicle in a parking lot, which is a little more routine than I'd like to admit. Perhaps it's a first grader with a disability that brings a weapon to school. Maybe it's a senior who posts an online threat for his graduating classmates. Not only do we have to deal with the spike in student misconduct, but we also end up with a number of procedural issues that tend to be complicated by the close of the school year. Uh, those that are associated with graduating seniors, maybe it's something that we you know, want to look at the possibility of bringing uh, the kid back sooner in the next school year because we're going to have the summer to reboot. How we want to structure the consequences for that upcoming school year may be a part of what goes into the analysis. So with me today to talk through some of these questions is a distinguished panel consisting of some of my partners, including Emily Omohundro, Drew Marriott, Tom Smith, and Rachel Meistead, all previous suspects appearing on our podcast. Welcome back, guys. Thank you. Good to be back. Thanks, Dwayne. All right. They sound like they're excited to be here. So today we have actually pulled out all of the stops and brought together the five of us to talk about student discipline and more specifically, how the heck we make it through the end of the school year without going insane from the poor choices that some of our students seem determined to make before the end of the year. I think there's a lot to talk about here. So uh, I th- just to get us started, I thought it might be nice to take a minute to hear from each of you a situation that sticks out in your mind involving year-end student misconduct, something you've had to deal with. And I think probably a good place to start is, Emily, why don't you kick us off? Give us a situation that, uh, that comes to your mind when you think about year-end student misconduct. To be fair, I feel like I try to black out most of these things by this time of year because it's just kind of crazy. But um, I feel like one, an odd situation uh, that we had come up is um, at the end of the year, we know, you know, kids are 
bringing back uh, things they've had at home that are school owned. Um, and we had a situation where a student at the direction of their parent brought back a bag full of district technology cords and laptop and that sort of thing um, at the direction of her parent for her sibling. And in the bag, uh, unbeknownst to the student was also a weapon that was prohibited by the Safe Schools Act. And mm. the student was just following the advice from the parent and dropped the bag off. Teacher went through the bag and found the weapon in the bag. And um, it's just bizarre because typically when we have a situation with uh, students who bring weapons to school, um, they at least knew that they brought the weapon um, or had put it in their backpack and perhaps forgot. Um, you know, we frequently see situations where kids go um, perhaps hunting in the morning and forget to take a firearm or a knife or something out of a bag or a vehicle. Um, but in this situation, the student had no clue that the weapon was in the bag that they brought to school. And so that presented kind of a novel issue. Um, because under the Safe Schools Act, there's uh, some required discipline. Um, there wiggle room, there's some wiggle room in policy to deal with that and in the statute as well. But it's just a strange situation when we have a student who didn't realize that they brought an item to school that would carry such a strict and harsh discipline um, response. So um, that was definitely one of the stranger ones um, I've seen come up. That is a good one. Um, you know, it's almost as if the parent's more to blame than the student in that situation, too. And it's um, not really having the intention of bringing the weapon on property. And yet you have the zero tolerance of the Safe Schools Act requiring the automatic one year out unless it's, you know, reduced by the board upon the recommendation of the superintendent. Good one. Good one. Let's see. Who's next victim? Drew, what about you? Any situations that come to mind for you? Yeah, so a couple of years ago, we had a situation where somebody posted a Craigslist ad uh, on the internet to sell their high school, and they, they really undervalued it. I think it was $12,175. Um, it had a bunch of funny descriptions in it, but in it listed this, the, the reason for the, the sale was the upcoming loss of students, and this was something that was unbeknownst to the district at the time until they started to receive reports from parents they were concerned about this threat that was online and parents actually started holding their kids out of school um the the post uh was ultimately after you work through subpoenas from the police uh, where they subpoenaed records from uh, craigslist and then subpoenaed records from google so they had to get uh, they had to get orders from the judge to get those things and then interviewed the student and then the student before the police notified the school came in and said, yeah, I posted this. At this point in time, um, the post it came kind of fell between uh, a, two, a, a two week period where two school shootings had happened and parents were interpreting this as a threat and listing it as a reason for why they were withholding their kids out of school. This was a few days before graduation, so it, it was not a long-term suspension, but the student was uh, suspended for three days and not allowed to walk at graduation. That resulted in um, a certain civil liberties organization filing a lawsuit on, on the student's behalf. And after uh, 
a few depositions and, and after uh, the time that he went up to Chicago to be on a, a television show and have a mock graduation and get a 10% down payment check from a mortgage company so he could purchase his high school, um, you know, they ended up dismissing the case and, and nothing came about from it. Uh, one of the things that was kind of interesting through that process is you know, when we're disciplining students, you know, we've got processes we follow for disciplining uh, and suspending them from school. Um, but when it comes to a graduation event, there's case law out there that those those ceremonies aren't necessarily a right. So that was that was something that that was interesting to work through at the end of the year with a, a senior that didn't get to walk. That, that is a good one. I remember it well. Uh quite a bit of media attention around that. So maybe some of our listeners can recall that one as well. But what about you, Tom? Uh, any particular situations that stand out in your mind as uh, related to year-end student misconduct? Yeah, there, there are a few, but you know, the one that always comes to mind for me is one of the things that I always find the most interesting is, is when we have these senior pranks that happen. And, and you know, I won't go into detail about mine. I'm not sure if the statute of limitations has run out on that one yet. Yeah, it probably uh, should have been more clear. A situation that did not involve you directly <laughs> as a student. Yeah, All right. So another senior prank did not did not involve me as a student. And it's one that you you and I actually worked on, Dwayne. Um, and it was quite a, it was a few years back. There was a district that at the high school they had a, an atrium and they had a uh, big tree in the atrium. Yes. <laughs> uh, and for a senior prank, someone thought that it would be fun to go dig up that tree. And what they didn't realize is that that tree actually cost thousands of dollars. And when they dug it up, they killed it. And so it was really, and it was a senior really close to graduation. So it, you know, it was interesting to kind of work through the balance of wanting to make sure that discipline is imposed, but also taking into account that it's a graduating senior that didn't really have an understanding or an appreciation of the amount of damage they were really doing. Uh, they thought it was a relatively minor thing, and it turned out to be something major. And that's kind of, and anytime you have seniors right before they're about to graduate that are getting it, having discipline issues, that's always the balance that you're trying to trying to find. You know, how do you uh, ensure that they're, they're getting they're graduating, but you're still making it clear to them that what they did was not OK? Yeah, I, re I recall that one. And because of the money that was involved, I think law enforcement got involved and there were a number of other pieces of that one. But, yeah, uh, those are those are good ones. Uh, putting a little pressure on you here, Rachel. Uh Anything situations for you that uh, stand out uh, involving year-end uh, student misconduct? I shouldn't have agreed to go last, I think. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, lately, um, the biggest thing, especially with students with disabilities, have been weapons. Um, and yeah. they're, you know, a little bit more straightforward from the disciplinary standpoint. But it seems like the common excuse has been that they're bringing something with them that they're going to use typically knives um, for lunch and then end up not having that thing with them that they were supposedly using that knife to eat at lunch. And so um, that's just kind of been what's been going on typically or lately, I suppose, um, with discipline with us. I don't have any great odd story, I guess, to follow those three. 
I could give you details about my senior prank too, but I won't. So Okay. <laughs> well, I'll have to hear that sometime. And I'm sure our listeners would love to hear it sometime. But um you know, it, it does seem like we have had our, more than our fair share of students with disabilities and weapons this spring for some reason. So uh, just uh, coincidence, I suppose, but it does seem to be coming up. Um, well, I want to pivot into something uh, and just give each of you a little bit of a chance to talk about the, you know, the, the issue or issues that you're seeing the most Um things that you feel like our school leaders need to be thinking about at this time of year um, when it comes to student misconduct. And, and uh, you know, maybe it involves a, a, some sort of procedural misstep. Maybe it's just the, the type of thing that presents itself in a way that it causes some complexities. But I just want you to kind of talk uh, what if you were to kind of isolate one or maybe even two areas that that you feel like people need to concentrate on and be thinking about, what would they be? And I'll start with you, Emily, because uh, I always seem to start with you, uh, pick on you first. Um, what is it that uh, that you that comes to mind for you that you would say, hey, I, I really want to make sure school leaders at the district level and this and at the building level really need to be thinking about in terms of student misconduct. I think one thing that comes up a lot as we get closer toward the end of the school year when it comes to student discipline is um, the idea that discipline, the appropriate discipline to assign for something that is a serious issue um, is one that may span over not just the current school year, but the next school year. So in thinking about that, um, what we see some school leaders do or or desire to do is say well you know we had this serious incident typically that would be something like you know 10 to 20 30 maybe 40 days of out of school suspension but because we're so close to the end of the school year we really don't want to keep the student out starting in the 21 22 school year so you know, what can we do to try to create some serious discipline, but also um, get the student started off correctly for the beginning of the next school year. And so what we have seen um, a number of school leaders do is implement discipline that goes through the end of the current school year, and then bring the student back under some sort of terms and conditions um, for the coming school year. So what that really looks like is, you know, if we have a situation where we've got uh, 10 days left of school, but we want to implement a 20 day suspension, for instance, we would see that leader do a 20 day suspension where they implement 10 days and then bring the student back on sort of probation at the beginning of next school year where they need to behave for a period of time, follow discipline code, not engage in similar violations um, for the beginning of the coming school year. But I think the thing to keep in mind for school leaders when doing that sort of arrangement uh, is that that, from a procedural perspective, that is still technically a long-term suspension. So even if the uh, end of the school year is within that 10-day timeframe where we would not see uh, Board, a board hearing rights attach for just only a 10-day suspension, 
Um, the thing to keep in mind is that if we are bringing a student back on probation and there's that possibility that they may end up serving more than 10 days of OSS, they're still entitled to that higher level of due process that would be associated with any other long-term suspension. So when we, when we see those discipline letters written, um, we would really like those to be written in a way where it's clear that it, while it is a long-term suspension, the student has the opportunity to return under certain probationary conditions. And um, if the parent or the student, even if they select that probation type arrangement, um, they're still entitled to that hearing. So the parent needs to be notified that the student is entitled to a hearing before the board, even if we're allowing them to come back under certain conditions. Um, so that's just something we see a lot at this time of year because at the end of a school year, there really aren't that many days in terms of OSS at issue. So we see those um, out of school suspensions creeping into the next year. I think that's a great point. And as far as that strategy goes and explaining it, um, Emily, can we come back to one of the points that you're raising it, it is if the structure of that student uh, discipline or those consequences, if you will, because um, you have to do it a particular way, right? You have to suspend for a longer period of time and give them the due process associated with that, whether it be 30 days, 120 days, whatever it may be, but then you probate that back to a lesser time and implement those conditions that you're talking about rather than try to do it in a serial fashion, for example, where you're saying, okay, you're out 10 days, and if that doesn't work out, then we're going to add to it. Can you explain why it gets structured that way? Sure. So once, uh, once a discipline violation has occurred and a consequence has been attached to that, and the consequences served, we're kind of finished with being able to implement additional discipline for the same offense. So the reason that we want to structure it as a long-term suspension and then to probate it or dial it back um, under with certain conditions is because we want to still be able to have the authority to act if the student isn't complying with the probationary requirements, because we're still relying on that initial discipline violation as our rationale for implementing additional consequence. Um, so the consequences are all attached to that initial um, misconduct and our authority to be able to take action regarding those things is based on our communication to the student and the parent of the full consequence, not, um, well, because, you know, when you came back, you weren't, you weren't following the probationary requirements or you engaged in similar conduct, we're going to go ahead and implement a longer term suspension due to that prior misbehavior. Well, that's not really the way that we want to do that. Um, because it's messy. So what we like to see is that we're explaining to the parent, this is the full range of consequence, and we're willing to dial it back if you're going to agree to the conditions that we're presenting to you in order to allow your student to return in person instead of serving that full amount of out-of-school suspension. That's definitely the preferred strategy, and part of that, too, is it not that um, if, you, uh, if you do it in that way, say they do not satisfy the terms or conditions – you're not having to go through the whole due process again and have the opportunity to have that long-term suspension heard by the board, et cetera. It's simply 
implementing what is has already been decided, which is the longer term suspension, and then basically saying, okay, well, we gave you a probationary period, you didn't fulfill the conditions, so now we're reinstating that longer term suspension, and you're not really, um, it's not triggering that additional process, right? Right, and I also think that, you know, in the event of some sort of legal challenge, I much prefer the framework of having given the parents and the student a choice about whether they wanted the student to serve the full long-term suspension or whether they wanted to comply with the conditions that the administration presented in order for the student to return. Um, so, you know, if we have a situation where there's, you know, the parent does try to make some sort of legal challenge to that, we can say, hey, we gave you the options here and uh, you know, you knew what the rules were going to be for your child to be able to return in person. All good stuff, Emily. Um, appreciate that. That's good insight on, on, on uh, the due process aspects of this. What about you, Drew? Um, turning to you, um, you know, what kinds of things would you want to uh, remind our uh, school leaders about or put in their in their minds as they're facing uh, student misconduct at the end of this school year? Yeah. And so, I mean, in terms of kind of common missteps, I mean, these are not all necessarily things that are unique to the end of the school year, but just things that have, have, come, have come up. You know, one of the things that kind of relates to Emily's comments about when we have this discipline that potentially spans two school years is, is just double checking that calculation of days. Um, we've had instances before where, um, where we have maybe gone past certain number of days as originally kind of laid out. And I'm not good at those math things, but what I end up doing is going through and just counting the days to double check that sometimes. Um, and so that's been something that we've dealt with in the past and looked at. Um, this is not not unique to end of school year, but I think when we think about spring, um, I don't know if it is a hormonal thing, but we end up dealing with student student sex situations in some ways. And I think one of the things that we need to remember now uh, is with Title IX. And so when we, we have you know Title IX instances, so something gets routed and we have a formal grievance and that's being investigated as Title IX, the new requirements under the regulations that we're treating students equitably and not handing out handing down that discipline until that's been investigated and processed through that title nine process so that's kind of a new uh, a new a new issue that we have in dealing with those that we didn't historically have um and i think one thing uh this is also kind of a COVID situation and um but you know, just kind of some of the simple logistical things. If you can have your court reporter there in person and not remotely, um, that that may be something that uh, <laughs> makes makes things a little bit a little bit easier. And that's <laughs> because Emily had a student hearing last night that involved that situation. So he's giving his colleague a hard time. <laughs> well, and it and, and it was something that we scheduled that to be in person, and that was a, an issue on the court reporter's end. Um, but there's just some of those difficulties that come up. And then I, I'd say real quickly, a couple is that if a, if a student has a, an appeal hearing to the Board of Education, I think one of the things that we need to remember is that discipline's deferred unless the superintendent writes a letter explaining why that student still poses a danger to persons or property or the threat of disrupting the school. 
Um, and then also the reports to the board that would come and lay out what the facts and the situations are um, and, and why the district took certain, certain steps. I, I think that's a great point, Drew. I mean, that's often one that's missed, as you know, where, it, you know, if somebody does file an appeal to the board, at that point, the superintendent has to have made that determination that the, that the kid is a threat to uh, themselves, others, or property. And if, not, if not, they go back while that appeal is pending. Uh, so that's a great point. Uh, and that's one that we often see missed. So appreciate you pointing that part out. Um, all good stuff. That Title IX piece that you mentioned, um, that one is is a tough one because uh, right now we've got those new regs that are in place and require us to follow a, a kind of an elaborate procedure. And if we have kids that are not old enough to form consent, um, then we have some issues that come up in that regard. So I think that's a great point as well. Um, um, how about you, Tom? Um, let's, let's pick on you for a minute here. Uh, what kinds of, of things would you want to uh, take a moment to, to talk to school leaders about when it comes to student discipline? I think at this time of the year, one, one issue that we see come up a lot is off-campus misconduct. And when, when are we able to impose discipline for something like that? And for whatever reason, it seems like the closer we get to the end of the year, the more this issue comes up. Not sure if it's the weather, kids are just ready to be out for the summer, or what it happens to be, but for whatever reason, it seems to pick up a lot around this time of year. And what the kind of the issue that arises really is, you know, we have, whether it's a parent or um, just a community member or even other students coming to, to us as administrators and saying, hey, this happened and I want you to do something about it. For whatever reason, they think that anytime a kid that's enrolled in the district does anything wrong, whether it's on campus or not, the school can discipline for it. But that's not really the case. We have, uh, we have to look at the, the facts of the situation and determine, one, is there a sufficient nexus to the school? Uh, and, and what we mean by that is, did it pose a threat or danger to the safety of other students or staff or school property? or did it disrupt the operation of the school? Um, but one thing we've got to kind of keep an eye on is it doesn't mean when we say disruption to the school, we're not talking about any disruption at all. It needs to be a substantial disruption that we can clearly point out to establish that nexus. And then we would have the authority to discipline for off-campus misconduct. I think that's a great point. And, uh, and for anybody that's been tracking it, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court is kind of dealing with this issue right now in the, quote, cheerleader case uh, involving the use of social media off, off campus. And um, it seemed like from the oral arguments, the court was a little bit uh, suspect of the uh, – or the suspicious, I should say, of the school's reasoning for – in terms of explaining the disruption in that case. But – that's, uh, I think those are key points when it comes to dealing with off-campus misconduct. What is the nexus with the school? Being able to demonstrate that nexus and not just any nexus, but okay, how does this show that there's a reasonable forecast of a substantial material disruption, throwing in the tinker standard there, showing that, um, that we've got uh, something that's really having an adverse impact on the school's operations. And um, that one is, uh, you know, we may see a little bit of a shift in the law, depending on what the U.S. Supreme Court does with that. It's likely to be this fall before we learn anything in that regard. But 
for the time being, um, as you said, Tom, they're going to have to be be prepared to talk through how that's disruptive to the school. So those great, great points there. And uh, Rachel, since you chose to be last, I'll come to you last. Um, talk to us about what uh, what you would have to say to school leaders uh, about year-end student misconduct. What things do you think are important, important to emphasize at this point? So my topic uh, relates to students with disabilities, and it is the requirement to do a manifestation determination meeting if we're disciplining a student for more than 10 days for one event or if they are being disciplined for more than 10 days total in a school year out of school um, and there's a pattern of conduct. And so it's, you know, like a lot of the other topics, this comes up all throughout the year, but I think that it's really important to remember in the spring just because there are so many things going on um, and, you know, sometimes these little steps get lost in the shuffle, or it seems clear based on a disciplinary event and a student's disability. Um, the example I like to use would be for a student who has a 504 plan because they have a peanut allergy, and then they get in a fight at school and we're out of school suspending them. Um, it's important to note that it's that peanut allergy is probably not going to be the cause of that fight. What if it was a food um, fight? It may be. So there's, there's one okay. slim example. Um, but a manifestation determination meeting is still going to be required either way. So you can determine, you know, food fight or just regular fight, whether that was the disability was a cause. Um, and then, you know, kind of as we were talking about earlier, lately, it seems to be that students with disabilities are bringing weapons to school um, more often than they have been throughout the rest of the school year. And so when you have a weapon at school, the Safe Schools Act says, you know, we have a mandatory one year suspension or expulsion unless the board uh, modifies that at the recommendation recommendation of the superintendent. And so a lot of times districts think, well, you know, we're required to suspend them by law. And so it doesn't really matter if the disability was a cause, but it actually does. And so we need to still do those manifestation determination meetings, even for that conduct when we, it seems like we are bound by a statutory minimum for disciplinary consequence. You know, that's an interesting one because the law actually kind of provides an out on that one year out, uh, that zero tolerance piece of the statute for students with disability, right? And so that wouldn't necessarily apply the same way. But even at that, when you're looking at it, you're still going to have to go through the MD process to make sure that you don't have, a, you know, a, a suspension that is a manifestation of that particular disability. And uh, I mean, you're right, we've seen a number of cases this spring for whatever reason, where we had students with disabilities and they did have a weapon at school. And um, that's a little bit scary uh, for a number of us in particular, you know, when you have a student, regardless of whether it's a student with a disability or a student uh, who does not have a disability, and maybe they've been exhibiting some behaviors and now they've got a weapon in the school environment as well, um, definitely something to be taken seriously and something that, that uh, districts have to focus in on. But as you say, Rachel, we've got to make sure we're jumping through the procedural hoops, right? And make sure that we're doing, uh, you know, one thing that comes up in this regard, Rachel, that I just want to touch upon is that um, the requirement for the manifestation determination when we do have a long-term suspension 
you know, we're talking about the end of the school year here. Um, you were talking about what we used to call the pattern of exclusion, you know, that, that time out, that 10 days out that, uh, that you might have. It really kind of adds up by the time you get to this end, end of the school year, right? Because it could be that they've been out on an intermittent basis throughout the school year, and that now we've got to kind of tie those days together. Is that not right? That's true. And part of that, too, I think that some districts don't realize is that if you send a, a kiddo home early because of a disciplinary event, that's going to count as a suspension as well um, during the time, you know, even if you may not suspend them or include a, you know, a firm suspension for that event, if you send them home early, that time also counts toward their 10 days. That's a great point because a lot of times, you know, they say there's an event in the middle of the day. Somebody might send the kid home for the rest of the day. Well, that's time out, right? And that's basically time out of school that needs to be counted towards that number uh, that we were talking about. So that's that's a great point. Um, great insights, guys. I appreciate you taking the time to kind of spend a few minutes to to uh, talk a little bit about year in student discipline. Never a shortage shortage of issues for people. Uh, I want to thank you for being here and providing a little bit of uh, your thoughts about some of these issues. And we thank you, the listeners, for taking the time today. We hope you'll follow and share our Ed Council podcast on social media and subscribe to hear upcoming episodes on current legal topics and issues related to school law. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, or you can check us out at our website. Just Google Ed Council, E-D-C-O-U-N-S-E-L, all one word, and you'll find us there. Glad we could be together, and thanks for listening to this edition of Ed Council Insights.